listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 296, and today we are talking about books being released on February 2nd, 2021, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Danica Ellis, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Danica, hello! Hello! How's it going? Good. I'm uh, just finishing up my first teaching contract, which means I survived. I made it through. So that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you're, I don't know if like listeners know, like I'm not going to like tell them your address, you know, maybe <laughs> just your social security number, but um, no, you're in Canada. Do you have social security numbers in Canada? Look at how little I actually know about anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do. <laughs> I figured, but then I was like, wait, wait, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm in BC and this is my first year. This is my first time actually having a class of my own. So I've done TOCing, like substitute teaching, but this is my first time that I actually had a class for a whole semester and it was mostly aspiring hockey players and then a few soccer players. So it was all boys, all athletes, a ton of energy, so, so much energy. <laughs> And you survived. And I survived. So that's that's a big plus. <laughs> that's great. Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, I have a little bit of, I don't know, housekeeping to do before we get started here today. As hard as it is to believe, uh, in four weeks, it will be our 300th episode. Woo! 300th episode, which is just wild. I feel like we were just discussing this 200th episode, and now it's 300th episode. Not only that, but then, like, in May, it's our five-year anniversary of when the show launched. Went by so fast. Mm -hmm. And it's been so incredible. We've had such a good time. And we like to do something to commemorate, like, the 50s. Usually we do, do like, 250. I think we did, like, a question and answer. And so for this time, for the 300th episode, we are asking listeners, if you have any burning questions that you want to ask any of us or the show in general... Uh, you can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com. And over the next few episodes, starting with the 300th episode, uh, myself and the co host will be answering a few of them at the end of each episode. So that's all the books at bookriot.com. If you have any questions like, you know, what was that book that you talked about that I keep trying to remember? Or, you know, why is the sky blue? Stuff like that. You know, anything you want to ask us, let us know. So now we are going to talk about books coming out today, February 2nd, which is Bananas. This is like such a huge new release day. Yeah. It was really hard, like narrowing down my choices. Yeah, me too. But I'm so thrilled with everything that I chose. Um, and I'm so thrilled about your picks. And it's going to be yeah. awesome. And we're going to hear about them. But first, we are going to hear from a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. 
But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay. So my first pick is a true crime book that I'm so excited about. But before I start talking about it, I just want to give you a heads up about the entire discussion because I am going to mention some really disturbing stuff in the description of the book because it is imp- important to the, the book itself. So if that is something you, that you're worried about, you know, I would just skip ahead because it is very distressing. Uh, My first book today is called Two Truths and a Lie, A Murder, a Private Investigator, and Her Search for Justice by Ellen McGarrahan. So like I said, heads up, some really upsetting stuff. This is one of those amazing true crime slash memoir mashups that, you know, we've been getting more of these days, you know, like Fact of a Body and uh, Third Rainbow Girl. It's so fantastic. So Ellen McGarrahan, uh, in 1990, she was a rookie reporter at the Miami Herald. And she was sent to cover the execution of a man named Jesse Teferro. It's just like something that they did back then, almost like as like a way to haze the new person. They would send them to witness an execution and write about it, which is just mind blowing that this was just something people were like, oh, and she didn't want to be like, no, I'm not going to do that because she wanted you know, to get more work and she wanted to move up in her job. And she was like, yeah, sure, totally. I'll go do that. So what happens is that. Obviously, the man is being put to death, but the execution goes wrong and something even worse happens that I'm not going to talk about here. And it's really traumatic for everyone there. And, you know, never mind like the the prisoner, but, you know, everyone who had to witness this, it's just horrible. And it, it changed her life. I mean, she had just started this great new job and now it's all she could think about what happened. She becomes very restless. She quits her job. She moves to the West Coast. She gets a job as a house painter. She starts taking these other odd jobs, but she's she's not doing well. She's depressed and she's sabotaging her relationships and she's really restless. And, you know, she's just she's been traumatized and she ends up becoming a private investigator. She hears about it from someone else and she goes and talks to an instructor and the man who who trains her to get to help her get her license actually tells her, like, women make better private investigators because people take them for granted. They don't notice them as much. They're not as afraid of them. They don't think they're as smart as men sometimes. So it, like, really works in your favor. And she becomes this incredible private investigator. And this goes on, like, this was, like, you know, in the mid-90s. And this goes on for many years. And in between these years, she's called to testify several times to discuss what she saw at that execution in 1990. And so it, like, keeps bringing it up in her mind. And then now we've moved up into the 21st century. Um, we have the internet, and she reads this article about the man whose uh, execution she witnessed, Jesse Tafaro, and reads something that says that maybe he was not guilty of the crime that he was accused of. Now, Jesse Tafaro was accused of killing two police officers. It was himself, and another man, and his girlfriend, and their two small children in a car. Uh, The cops pulled over to see what they were doing because they were sleeping on the side of the road. Long story short, the cops wind up dead. So they each blamed each other. One of them turned state's witness in order to take the death penalty off the table. One of the other 
suspects went to jail. He and he was executed for it. Now there's like she's read this thing that says that maybe he wasn't guilty of the crime. So like and like this is like this took place in February of 1976. These murders. So like so much time has passed. And she decides that the only way that she can find closure, the only way that she can come to terms with what she saw is to investigate the crime herself. And that's what she goes about doing. She starts talking to tons of people who knew all three suspects, uh, a couple of the people who were at this rest stop who witnessed the crime. Uh, she ends up speaking with people who are like jewel thieves and like mobsters in the 60s and just, you know, the families of the victims. She goes to the crime scene. She goes to the evidence box and looks at things. And it just becomes this obsession for her. She's like never home. She's always traveling. She's always, you know, trying to learn about it. And she even puts herself in harm's way just in order to get answers for things. And it's like, how far is she willing to go to get the truth? It's incredible. I mean, it's really well written. It gives you so much to think about from all these different perspectives. Um, You know, I don't think we talk enough about secondhand trauma. You know, I met a woman when I was in New York City for uh, Book Riot Live several years ago who had taken a break from work because she had been a jury member on this double murder trial. And it, it upset her so much that she she was depressed and she couldn't sleep. And she was, and like that was something I had never thought about, like all these people who are, you know, also being exposed to all this. And it's and this book goes a long way to talk about what that secondhand trauma is like. And it you know talks a lot about capital punishment and also one of the things that i found so fascinating about this is that in 1976 when people were giving their statements when the suspects were making their statements you know they were saying certain things and now fast forward 40 years later and one of the suspects is telling a different story and it used to be that you know if someone said something and then they changed their story well maybe a few people read it in the paper and remembered it but now you know you can google what she had said and it's completely different. And like, why is her story different? And it just, it was so interesting to me that like, the whole world knows that your story is different now, as opposed to a long time ago when, you know, it was in the paper and that was it. It's so fascinating. I could just keep going on and on and on about it, but I'm not going to. Um, so I do want to give content warnings. Obviously, you know, this is a, a book about murder and capital punishment. So there are descriptions of the murder and the execution as well as uh, mentions of sexual assault, drug use, illness, and loss of a spouse. So this is Two Truths and a Lie, A Murder, A Private Investigator, and Her Search for Justice by Ellen McGarrahan. Oh, you know, the other thing I wanted to mention that was really cool is that when I read this, I got a copy a year ago, I think, and Ellen McGarrahan is a private investigator. So she was nowhere on the internet. Like, I Googled her. I wanted to get, like, an image of her in my mind. So there was, she was nowhere to be found. There was no author photo of her. There was no website. There was nothing. I was like, how cool is this? Like, she doesn't exist because she does a lot of private eye work. Um, now she does have an author photo. It is up on the Penguin Random House site. But back then I was like, imagine just not being able to be found on the web. That's so rare these days. Man, when you were describing that book, I had to keep reminding myself that it's a true story. It's like, okay, yeah, I understand this whole mystery plot of why she became a private investigator. (laughs) And I'm like, wait, no, this is reality. That is intense. Yeah, it's so intense. And unfortunately, or fortunately, it's only one of the several intense books I'm going to discuss today. Oh, man, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my next pick actually also has to have some content warnings up front, so 
We are front-loading this episode with that. And it is Milk Fed by Melissa Broder. And this book, and also me talking about it, is going to include discussion of disordered eating, self-loathing, and some internalized homophobia, but especially disordered eating and concerns about weight. So if you are not able to listen to that, I would recommend skipping forward a few minutes. So this follows Rachel, a 20-something woman who is obsessed with food. She carefully counts calories and dutifully exercises to keep thin, and she is ravenous. Every moment she is awake, she is thinking about food. She was raised to prize and police her body, and despite this tight control she keeps over her weight, it's never enough for her mother. Rachel is a woman repressed. She is either bisexual or a lesbian, but she's pushed that down most of her life. She desperately wants her mother's approval, and she feels like her hunger is bottomless. In her mind, she has to exert this control, because if it slips for a moment, she will spin out. She will never stop eating. She will never stop gaining weight. During a session, her therapist asked her to do two things. One, to go on a 90-day communication detox from her toxic mother and two, to sculpt her fear of gaining weight. Rachel agrees, and she uses all of the clay available to her to sculpt a fat woman. Her therapist says, I think she's quite lovely, and I think she's worthy of love. Don't you think so? And Rachel has no way to answer this, no way to really think about this. She storms out of the session, and she doesn't return. The next day, she goes to get her daily low-fat yogurt, no toppings, filled just to the line, and meets a new employee, a beautiful fat woman who fills her cup past the line and comps her some sprinkles. Rachel is panicked. This does not fit into her calorie plan. Instead of throwing the extra yogurt out, though, she finds herself devouring it and coming back every day. Soon she is falling for Miriam, and every time they are together, she finds herself veering from her carefully controlled food plan. There are some books, very rarely, that I read and form such a personal attachment to that I kind of don't want to share them with the world, and this is one of them. I picked it up based on the fact that it was queer, and it had a blurb from Carmen Maria Machado, and that was pretty much all I knew about it. It turned out to be an immersive, raw, sometimes overwhelming reading experience. The main character struggles with her repressed sexuality, her issues with food and her body, and her mother issues, and those all get tangled up in each other, which is my way of trying to tactfully give a content warning for some of her fantasies. She is looking for mother figures in the wrong places, desperately wanting the unconditional love she never received as a child. This is a darkly comic book that had me highlighting and underlining on almost every page. She describes her first boyfriend as, I began dating him by default when one night in his car, he put his hand on my thigh and I was too hungry and too tired to deal with moving it. I ended things a few months later when I got the energy to move it. And her assessment of her therapist is, she was probably someone who genuinely enjoyed a nice pair. I found myself reading this book compulsively. I fell completely into Rachel's worldview, and I couldn't tear myself away. If you're someone who struggles with disordered eating or body image issues, this isn't a book to pick up lightly, but at the same time, it was a cathartic read. Over the course of the book, Rachel goes from extreme restriction to feeling out of control to discovering something like balance. It's a book that asks, what is your worst fear of your body? Isn't that person worthy of love? This book had me almost in tears several times. 
I think that many, maybe most women fear being out of control and often feel like they're right on the precipice of it. And this story asks, what would happen if you let go of that control? Honestly, this is just scratching the surface of MilkFed. I haven't even mentioned how much discussion of Judaism is here. Miriam is devout and Rachel is lapsed and is trying to discover her relationship with it again. I haven't really talked about Miriam's character at all or the ups and downs of their relationship. Still, I hope that gives you some sense of the journey I went through reading this. It was a cathartic, immersive, emotional read that I will not be able to forget. And that book, again, is Milk Fed by Melissa Broder. All right. I have that around here somewhere, but I haven't gotten to it yet. But it's on the short list. So good. So good. <laughs> the cover is it's amazing, too. I know. It really, it really tells me what it's about just from the cover. Yeah. My next pick is a debut sci-fi novel that I absolutely enjoyed. It's Winter's Orbit by Everina Maxwell, which was being listed as Ancillary Justice meets Red, White, and Royal Blue, which is kind of kind of true. I could see it, and it definitely got me to pick up the book. Um, it's a little more serious than Red, White, and Royal Blue, but I just absolutely enjoyed it. So it's set in space, and there is a prince named Kim. He is the emperor's least favorite grandchild. He just annoys her to no end. He's a problem. He's always getting into trouble. Like, he's like a young man now, but he's still, like, fodder for gossip and just always out of control. And the emperor has just had it with him. And so they are part of the Iscat Empire, uh, which includes several vassal planets. And they are up for audit. The accountant is coming to look into their interplanetary relations before agreeing to renew a peace treaty. And there is one of, one of the vassal planets, Thea, is kind of having some problems. There's a little like stress between the Iskat Empire and Thea. So the emperor tells Kiem that, um, well, first, to sort of settle these relations, they decided on a royal wedding. And so Kiem's cousin, the imperial prince Tam, married uh, Count Janan of Thea to improve relations. However, Prince Tam died in an accident, so the emperor tells Kim that he has to marry Tam's widower, widower Janan, uh, to keep the bonds between the planets. Oh, and by the way, the wedding is tomorrow. She just, like, springs this on him. And he's like, uh, 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 uh. But, you know, he's a partier. He's super irresponsible. You know, he's kind of ashamed that his grandmother, you know, thinks he's no good. And so he decides, you know, he wants to prove that he's a grown up and he will totally do this for his family. And he will do this for, you know, the the vassal planet relations. And he agrees. And so next day, boom, they're married. Like he meets him. How you doing? Let's get married. And after he discovers that maybe Prince Tam's death wasn't an accident. Uh, he talks to Janan, and Janan doesn't think so. And the problem is that Janan has been making inquiries into what happened. And by looking into the prince's death, uh, it could be bad for the treaty. Because if the accountant shows up to look into the relations, um, if they're looking into a murder, that obviously shows that somebody's not getting along somewhere if someone has murdered the prince. And it means that relations are not good, and they might not get the treaty signed. And that's really bad for everyone involved. But Kim agrees to help Janan get answers and find out what happens to Tam so they can try and save um, this treaty and so that everything will go according to plan. So this is sort of like a hard sci-fi slash romance novel. It's a little serious, but also 
really great. I really enjoyed the characters. I liked how little drama there was. You know, it has like that fake relationship trope at first, kind of. Well, I mean, it's a real relationship, but they don't know each other. And they're not like, ugh, I can't stand you. Or, you know, like how people sometimes fight in romance novels when they first meet. Um, They're very respectful of each other. And they're very tender with one another. They also have those, like, romance things. I'm not going to tell you the examples because it would be spoilers. But, like, you know, like when, like, oh, your pants are on fire. Take them off and come sit next to me while you wait for them to, you know, bring you new pants. Or, you know, oh, a Gila monster has gotten sick all over your clothes. You'll have to remove them immediately. And then it's like, oh, hello. Um, So it's, like, stuff like that. You know, just, like, those things in romance novels. And I really enjoy those. And, like I said, Kim and Janine are super respectful of one another, which I really enjoyed. And the political intrigue is great. And there are some action scenes. Uh, and it's just wonderful to see how they grow to care for and trust one another. And as we get towards the end of the book, like barreling towards the finish to find out like what actually happened. Content warning for violence, murder, gaslighting, mental illness, and loss of a spouse. That is Winter's Orbit by Everina Maxwell. Okay, that book sounds great, but also I'm hoping you have the title of a romance novel with Gila Monsters because I also want to read that. Oh, I don't. I just say what comes into my head, which is is obvious, I think, a lot of the time. Usually it involves animals. Well, someone needs to write it. All right, I will try and think of like a Gila Monster romance title for you. Thank you. That's all I have. All right, my next pick is Love is an Ex-Country by Randa Gerard, which when I put together the notes for this, I realized is another Carmen Marina Machado blurb. So I guess I just let her pick half my reads this month and highly recommend she did not steer me wrong. So in theory, this is about Randa Gerard's road trip across the U.S., inspired by Tahia Carioca's cross-country road trip. She took this trip in 2016 as a way to re-engage with her country, trying to find some connection with it after the alienation of Trump's election. I say in theory because this book actually has very little to do with that trip. It's an exploration of being a fat, queer Arab woman in America through vignettes of her life. Gerard describes what it's like to be a white-passing Arab woman in the U.S., including having white people expect her to agree with their racist comments and having to call them out and let them know that she is not white and doesn't agree with them. She describes being pulled over by a police officer who is sympathetic, and she even tries to convince him to give her a warning. She knows she is safe and being read as white. When she goes home, she discovers that Philando Castile was pulled over that same day. She also traces the history of tropes and stereotypes about Arabs in the U.S. and how that racism has transformed over time, often enforcing contradictory ideas. While this is a memoir, it reminds me of an essay collection meets poetry. Gerard often writes in short paragraphs juxtaposing different topics and will bounce around through time and talk about a lot of different things in a fairly short space, but it works really well. In the space of one page, she examines dolls from half a dozen perspectives, as playthings, as childhood punching bags, as used in therapy, as gifts, as sexualized muse by certain artists, and being treated as one in childhood. It feels like there are spaces between these ideas for the reader to fill in, to actively make those connections. 
This is also a book that requires a lot of trigger warnings. She includes harrowing details of her abuse, including physical abuse by her father, domestic abuse, and reproductive coercion. She was briefly infamous for a tweet that was critical of Barbara Bush after her death, reacting to her feed that was entirely praising her. In response, she received a barrage of hate mail, including vitriolic death threat emails that are included in this collection. She was doxxed, and her critics attempted to get her fired unsuccessfully because she had tenure, but the university did not take her side and, in fact, put out a public statement denouncing her comments. Gerard is Palestinian, which informs her politics. She describes trying to visit Palestine and the terrifying hoops she had to jump through. She spent the weeks before studying exactly what to say to the Israeli border guards, whose names to use, which reasons were acceptable for visiting. She is detained by these teenage boys who seem bored. They are kept for hours for seemingly no reason. Their passports are taken away. After facing a long line of bureaucratic hurdles, they can still be sent back to the U.S. for no apparent reason unable to step foot in their home, being kept out by another country. This memoir left me with a lot to think about. Gerard describes suffering through so much abuse in her life and feeling trapped and powerless. She discusses racism and misogyny and how they underpin so much of American society. At the same time, there is hope here. She is also a proud fat queer Arab woman, unafraid to speak her mind, and this is also a celebration of her survival and how far she's come. If you want a thoughtful, challenging memoir that will leave you thinking, pick up Love is an Ex-Country by Randa Gerard. Okay, okay, that sounds amazing, but as soon as you started talking, I thought of your Gila Monster romance title. Are you ready? Yes. You ready? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Head over Gila's. Oh, man. Who's writing that? Somebody has to snap that. <laughs> yeah. That is perfect. If you're going to write that out there, please just give me credit for the title. That's all I ask. <laughs> And let me know when it's done. I want to read it. <laughs> uh, as soon as you started talking, I was like, oh, oh. but luckily I had the microphone on mute because <laughs> I just got so excited. And I was, you know, you're talking about this really amazing, important book. And I'm like, hello, monsters. <laughs> <laughs> just jump in halfway. All right. So moving back to my all my books are very serious today theme. My next pick is The Project by Courtney Summers. Summers is the author of a bunch of amazing YA novels, including Sadie. This one has so much going on. Also, I was thinking about this earlier. Like, if we had to say, like, who was our contemporary Lois Duncan, I think I think Courtney Summers would be up there. This one is a very intense novel. At the heart of it, it's about a girl who is trying to get through to her sister who has joined a cult. But there's a lot more going on. It's about these two sisters, and it goes back and forth in time. Lo, in the present day, is 19 years old. She works for an investigative reporter, and she's his assistant. He has a website. They write these really interesting exposés about people and organizations, and he's really well-respected, and she really respects him. But she wants him to see her as more than his assistant. She wants to be a writer. She wants to be famous. She wants to do all kinds of great things. Um, And now she has an older sister named B. And at this time, in the present day, B has belonged to the Unity Project, which 
is basically a cult. Uh, Vice wrote an article about it a few years before. They called it a cult, and ever since then, they've refused to do any interviews or talk to anybody. But it's very much like, you know, the Nexium cult or um, any of the other cults that are, are being talked about, like on Netflix documentaries today. And it's run by, do I even need to say charismatic? I think you, the cult leaders are just always called charismatic. It's run by a man named Lev. Now, years earlier, Lo and her parents were in a car crash and their parents were killed and Lo was badly injured and she nearly died. And B met Lev during this time and he told her that Lo was going to wake up at a certain time and he was right. And so people were like, ooh, he's a mystic and isn't he amazing? And he convinces B to come be with him and, and join the Unity Project um, and leaves Lo uh, with their great aunt to be raised by her. And since then, they really don't have any contact. And especially towards the latter part of these years, like she's had no contact with her sister. And so now, like I said, I'm going to say some more stuff that's really upsetting. So now Lo is 19. And one day on her way to work, she witnesses a man jump onto the tracks in front of a train and finds out later that the man was the son of her boss's friend. And he was also a member of the Unity Project. And he says, like, he, this guy says something to Lo as as he's going by her. And she doesn't realize, like, what was happening at the time. Um, but she realizes now, like, if she wants her boss's respect and she can wants to find out what happened to B and, and where she is and if she's okay, she can investigate the death of this this man, you know, like, what drove him to this and was the cult responsible and so as she digs deeper, she finds herself maybe also falling victim to the cult's power herself, uh, and it winds up putting her in danger. It's a really, like I said, there's a lot going on. And I did read the Goodreads reviews after I read this, and one complaint that a lot of readers had was the back and forth in time. And I do have to say, like, it is, it does get a little confusing because it just jumps into things you know, back and forth. But it's this amazing story about loss. I mean, so much loss and loneliness and vulnerability. You know, B in, you know, the flashbacks, she's about to lose her sister and she has no family left. Uh, and, and you know, so she found the project. And Lo, in the present day, is alone. She has a very large scar on her face because of her accident. People stare at her all the time. They point it out. Kids ask her questions about it. It makes her feel alone. You know, she doesn't have her, even have her sister anymore. So she is essentially alone. And these are just very real, sympathetic characters, you know, and the story is, you know, cults are bad. Yes. But you can, like, Courtney Summers also does a really great job explaining why, you know, people join cults, you know. She's very sympathetic to people wanting to just be happy, to wanting their lives to be better, to wanting to be seen. Um, so there are a lot of uh, content warnings for emotional, physical, and psychological abuse, religious abuse, uh, abuse of power. And brainwashing, gaslighting, the removal of a child from its parents, attempted murder, murder, grief, death of family members, car accidents, and medical trauma. So that is The Project by Courtney Summers. And now we're going to hear from another sponsor. Okay, Danica, what do you have for us next? Yeah, my next pick is A Dowry of Blood by S.T. Gibson. So A Dowry of Blood is a queer, polyamorous reimagining of Dracula's Brides. And if you, like I was, are already intrigued, I recommend reading this not knowing a lot more about it, as long as you're aware that it depicts unhealthy and abusive relationships and includes descriptions of gore. 
This is a meditative look at this relationship, so it's easy for me to give away more than I mean to. The relationship doesn't even turn into a polycule until halfway through, so if you don't want to get any vague spoilers, skip ahead a few minutes, but if you need more convincing, I will forge on ahead. This is a polycule with two women and two men, and each of the four characters are bisexual or pansexual. We see this relationship through Constanta's eyes, who was his first bride. She was dying as a casualty on a battlefield when he came in as her savior, turning her into a vampire and nursing her back to health. She is overwhelmingly in love with him, and she also kills him within the first pages of the book. The rest of the story backtracks to say how we got here. I should specify that the name Dracula never appears in this book. Constanta is telling this story to him, explaining what brought her to killing him, and she decides that because he took her name away, renaming her Constanta, she would similarly rob him of his name, so he doesn't actually get a name in this book. It feels silly to talk about a book about vampires being a meditation on an abusive relationship, but it really is. Although this is fantastical, her descriptions of how she and later the other brides are treated feels all too realistic. He is patronizing, possessive, at times adoring or absent or cruel. Constanta learns to walk on eggshells, not asking more than two questions in a row. He wants to be her only source of joy, resenting when she is happy for any reason other than her his presence. Constanta was a devout Christian before being turned, and she still practices her faith to his disdain. She also hunts despicable people, those that she believes the world would be better off without. She finds monsters who are untouchable and kills them, and he believes that this is petty and childish. He studies humans from a scientific distance, believing that vampires are superior. He mocks her concern with human society. After all, they live for centuries, making each plague or war an inconvenience that they travel to escape from, but nothing to take too seriously. She is unhappy and confused by his mercurial affection, but she is still captivated by him and relies on him. Their relationship changes when he manipulates her into accepting new brides, seemingly bored with just her company. At first, it's Magdalena, a commanding, powerful woman with political correspondence around the world. Constanta is resentful of him bringing her into their relationship, but she can't help but fall for Magdalena herself. At first, this arrangement works. Magdalena and Constanta keep each other company in his absences, often in bed, and he is charmed by Magdalena's energy. Soon, though, his controlling nature saps her of her vitality, and she is left a shadow of the free, vital woman she once was. Still, they might have continued this way for centuries more until he adds Alexei to their mix. Alexei is a young man who adds fresh life to their home, but Alexei also challenges him and refuses to accept their limitations, leading to constant standoffs and tension. Constanta could endure her own pain, but she can't stand to see Magdalena and Alexei suffer. Although this is a vampire novel complete with ample sex scenes and gore scenes, it's just as much about Constanta reflecting on her relationship with this captivating and abusive person. She begins to see it in a different light, and she doesn't apologize for her actions. She recognizes that they loved each other, but that they couldn't live this way, and that all three of them were in danger if they let it continue. 
If you want a bisexual, polyamorous vampire novel that is also thoughtful and atmospheric, definitely pick up A Dowry of Blood by S.T. Gibson. All right. So my last pick for today is actually two books, and these two books are two of the best books I've read in a long time, and they are also two of the most disturbing books I've read in a long time. And if anybody has a link to any amazing articles out there that explains why we enjoy things that are this distressing, I would love to read them. Like, I stand by, you know, my love of these books, but wow, I just want to give you a heads up. There's going to be like all the content warnings uh, in these books, but let's hear about them. The first is a novel. It's called Good Neighbors by Sarah Langan. It's about this cul-de-sac and this like perfect neighborhood and all the houses are perfect and all the neighbors get along and they have cookouts and they neighborhood watch and it's all this great stuff. And one day these new neighbors move into a house. Uh, The mother is a former beauty queen. The father is a recovering addict and former uh, rock and roll star. And the other neighbors, because this is a very wealthy neighborhood, they kind of look down on them. They they think that they're unworthy of their neighborhood. And so the there's one woman in the neighborhood who takes it upon herself to sort of be the greeter and to be the head of the neighborhood. And she takes the mother under her wing and they become friends over several months. But then the head neighbor reveals something to this woman that the woman doesn't and the woman doesn't respond in the way that she wants her to. So then it becomes her mission to destroy these neighbors. And she becomes very angry and she turns on them and she turns everyone else on them. And the situations begin to escalate and escalate and escalate. While meanwhile, a literal sinkhole has opened up in the middle of the neighborhood. It is chilling. It's it's so intense and chilling. It's like if Shirley Jackson wrote Big Little Lies and so many horrible things happen. And I finished this book and I thought, what is wrong with me? Because this is one of the best books that I have read. The writing is stupendous. But I I didn't want to spend too much time talking about these two books today because I would just have to tell you more really horrifying things. But so that one is called Good Neighbors by Sarah Langan. And holy cats. My other pick is The Low Desert Gangster Stories by Todd Goldberg. These are stories that feature characters from his previous Gangsterland novels uh, that revolve around Sal Cuppertine, who is a Chicago hitman turned Vegas rabbi. Um, But you don't have to have read the Gangsterland novels to follow these stories. I myself had not read them and then went back and read them after, and they're just so incredible. It's kind of like gangster SVU stories, just stories of murders and assaults and cold cases and robberies and crime, just so much crime. Uh, There's one about a body in a lake. There's a hitman who's trying to get out of the business who has to make one last stop to see his boss. There's a cocktail waitress who is moving around trying to forget the loss of her daughter. Uh, There's a drug dealer with a penchant for karaoke who meets a lawyer and a clown in a bar. That one's pretty wild. They're all pretty wild. It's like if Donald Ray Pollock wrote gangster stories. I finished this one. And I was like, Todd Goldberg, who hurt you? Like, they're so dark, but just incredible, just devastating, but fascinating. I could have read a dozen more of these. But again, these two books, very dark. And I would love to know, like, why it is. I mean, not everybody loves dark stories, but I would love to know why it is that these appeal to me so much. And it might just be the writing. You know, the the quality of the writing is so good that you can't help but love them. 
Um, so this one is called The Low Desert Gangster Stories by Todd Goldberg. And I love them both so much. Okay, don't worry, listeners. I saved a light one for last. I know, <laughs> I know this episode has been about half reading content warnings, but... <laughs> yeah, content warnings up to our eyeballs. They're important, though. It's good to know these things. It is good to know. I just, we really loaded up all the, the really distressing books into one episode. But it's okay, because this one is is fun, and it's light, and it's happy. My last pick is A Taste for Love by Jennifer Yen. And this is a really fun YA rom-com that blends Pride and Prejudice elements with a Chinese baking show, Great British Bake Off style. So Liza is Taiwanese-American, and her mother and father run a restaurant and bakery. Her father does the cooking, and her mother does the baking. Liza has always been fascinated with baking, but her parents don't want her to take on the grueling work that they do. They are determined for her to get a practical degree that will lead to a lucrative career. Liza has never felt that she lives up to her mother's standards, unlike her model sister, who is off living the dream. For one thing, her mother is constantly trying to set her up with nice Asian boys who are on track to being doctors which just means that she's gotten really good at evading these surprise setups and meeting her white boyfriend in secret. But when her boyfriend cheats on her, she ends up in an argument in front of the whole school. He doesn't want to accept that anyone would break up with him. A new guy comes to her rescue only to immediately say something insulting to her, which leads to her now telling off whoever this guy is. So it's not a great day so far. Unfortunately, she runs into this jerk again when her best friend starts dating his best friend slash his cousin, Ben. His name is James, and as you might have guessed, he is our Darcy character. Meanwhile, Liza's mom is setting up her annual baking competition. Liza is not allowed to participate in case it looks like favoritism, but is allowed for the first time to help judge the competition. When the day arrives, though, Liza has two shocking realizations. One, her mother has only brought in teenage Asian boys as competitors. And two, she is offering baking lessons with Liza, private lessons, as part of the prize package. So she has basically just made this a dating show for her daughter without telling her daughter about it. Ben and James are two of the boys who are competing, and this competition quickly goes off the rails. This reminds me of a Netflix teen movie, which I absolutely mean as a compliment. It is really fun, and Liza is a great Elizabeth Bennett-esque main character. It is also guaranteed to leave you with food cravings. The baking is described in detail, and they are also always going for boba tea, which has left me with a boba tea craving that I cannot shake. I like seeing how the Pride and Prejudice elements were reimagined in the story. It keeps the same character archetypes, but changes some of their relationships and backstories in ways that work really well in this story. If you like rom-coms, Pride and Prejudice retellings, or The Great British Bake Off, give A Taste for Love by Jennifer Yen a try. I'm very excited to read this one. I have it. It's so cute. And it also reminds me that there's a book coming in September that I've been dying to get my hands on and have been unsuccessful so far called You Sexy Thing by Kat Rambo, which is being described as Farscape meets The Great British Bake Off. What? And, right? I want it so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No galleys yet still. So. <laughs> 
I hadn't thought of it in a couple of days. And then you mentioned the Great British Bake Off. And I was like, oh, Cat Rambo. So I'm really looking forward to that one, too. Yeah. So that is it for our new books, which were like 90% really distressing and dark, but so good. So good. What are you going to read next? I'm going to read Heathen Volume 3 by Natasha Alterici, and this is a Norse mythology comic with a lesbian main character, and it's super queer, and I really enjoyed the first two volumes, so I'm excited to try Volume 3. What are you going to read? I am going to read Milk Blood Heat Stories by Dantiel Moniz. I actually was going to read this for the show, and I was apparently overconfident for some i'm usually pretty good at keeping track of what books i have even though like 90 percent of my books are uh pdfs on my computer like my galleys that i read and i was certain that i had this one like absolutely certain and so last weekend i was like all right gonna read that book and then i didn't have it (laughs) and so i didn't get a copy until this afternoon and while i am a very fast reader Um, I could not fit it in before the show. So I've heard nothing but amazing things about the story collection. So I cannot wait to read it. So that is it for us today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com. If you have a question, send it to us and we might read it on one of the shows coming up in the next few weeks. If you want to find us online, you can find Danica on Twitter at Lesbrary, which is L-E-S-B-R-A-R-Y. I like to hang out on Instagram at Friends and Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more Gila Monster romance novels today, <laughs> we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now. So many in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter and in the meantime happy happy reading. reading